Greetings, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. Valar Reredis is a journey through the books for people who have made the journey before, brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. George R. Martin has said before, and will likely say again, that this series was designed to be reread. We're your tour guides on this journey, but even we doing this full-time can't catch everything. So if you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions or submit comments ahead of time. You can also send questions to our Facebook group and discuss things there. Our wonderful mods post each chapter with awesome art and lead discussions on them. Similar things happen on our social media outlets, Flick, Discord, and Slack. You can find the links all over our social media in the YouTube description, as well as most of the podcast description episodes. Also check out the Isle of Faces. That's Joe Buckley's show. Additional discussion on each episode. Each batch of chapters is held over there. He calls it Scraps and Scrolls. He's a contributor to each of our episodes, so you can get more of his thoughts over there. You can join us on Patreon, support the show there. It's the best way to help History of Westeros keep the lights on and keep all this content flowing. Both our scripted, our semi-scripted, and recurring live streams and all that stuff we do. This week, we've got a batch of chapters from the Lannister brothers and from Cat and Cat of the Canals. So it's lions and cats today, I suppose we <laughs> could say. It starts with Tyrion Three. The gang gets ordered around by Tywin, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion and Sansa are betrothed. Catelyn Three, the one with the dead prisoners, a.k.a. Karstark loses his head. Jamie Three, everybody wants Jamie, a.k.a. the Kingslayer's last hand. And Arya Four, the one with the ghost of Highheart, a.k.a. the gang tours the Riverlands. Tyrion's chapter is the longest today. In fact, it's the fourth longest of the 82 chapters in this book. The second longest is Daenerys 2, which is the first chapter we're going to do next week. And that, folks, is why we're doing four chapters this week instead of five, because we didn't want the second and fourth longest chapters in the same episode. For sake of completion, the third longest chapter in the book is Daenerys 4, which is the one where she conquers Yunkai and meets Dario amidst more tales of Rhaegar via Arston Whitebeard Selmy. We'll get to that one at the end of week nine. The longest chapter in A Storm of Swords is Tyrion 8, The Purple Wedding. And we'll get to that one in, fittingly, lucky number week 13. Today's chapters are grouped very close together geographically. We do spend most of this book, probably about 60 to 70%. Um, I haven't actually done the math, so I'm guesstimating. Between the areas of Riverlands and King's Landing, nor, uh, give or take a little bit of north and south. And those are pretty close to each other on the map, so it's not too unusual. If you were to draw a circle around today's characters in the map, it wouldn't be very large from River into King's Landing. All right, let's go. Tyrion 3, the gang gets ordered around by Tywin, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion and Sansa are betrothed. Sansa, of course, is not informed of this yet. She doesn't find out until the ceremony is about to begin, but she's already been measured for her dress. That's a big tell with regards to how Tywin is running things. Tyrion pointed out that Tywin often... Uh, lets them, rather, speak and argue, uh, but doesn't really listen to them. He just lets them feel heard, basically. That applies to Tyrion himself in this scene. It's been decided that he'll be master of coin and that he'll marry Sansa well in advance of this meeting. And Tywin has essentially decided that he's in charge of it all. <laughs> Joffrey's the king, but he's not in charge. 
You don't need the crown for that, and Tywin has plenty of bling to make up for it anyway. The chapter begins with Tyrion fixated on something he's been fixated on for quite a while. Lord Tywin's chain of hands made a golden glitter against the deep wine velvet of his tunic. Anyone watching live would see me pour a little water on myself there. (laughs) So deep wine velvet, that's a subtle but powerful reference to the meaning behind the color purple in European and Mediterranean history. Purple was the color of royalty in that part of the ancient world because you had to be crazy rich to afford it, like kingly rich. (laughs) If you recall the excellent but too short TV show Rome on HBO, you may recall a scene where Julius Caesar is deciding what to wear and he's concerned that the color he's chosen is too purple. It's, It's basically for his victory parade. He's just won the Civil War against Pompey the Great, so he's not trying to come off as a king. You know how those Romans were very careful about not coming off as a king. Tywin, not so careful. But mm, Nina points out that the historical name for this imperial color is Tyrian purple after the city of Tyre, which we've talked about before. It's certainly the influence for the city of of, uh, Tyrosh. There's that T-Y-R again. Tyrosh also has the same type of ability to color things, and it's the same mechanism too. They have snails that emit a certain different colors, depending on what they're fed. This is a real world thing. And it's funny that it's Tyrian purple, Tyrian purple, maybe the way it's pronounced, um, which of course fits in nicely with the very common T-Y suffix for, or prefix rather, for Lannister names. Purple also, probably why George gave the purple eyes to the Targaryens because of this royalty thing, but maybe not. Maybe it's just because it looks cool and fantasy-like. Anyway, It's the same concept here, but George is subtle about it by choosing the color deep wine because he's not flat out calling it purple. It's purplish, or at least he's alluding to it. And like I said, Tywin is acting like a king here, and it's a council meeting with many powerful lords present. But other than any of them, other than them getting rewards, which there are ample rewards and and benefits given out during this session, do any of them actually make decisions? I don't think they do. I don't think a single piece of advice or strategy is given that Tywin accepts. Maybe there's some that he had already decided and they simply suggested something he was already going to do, that he had reached the same conclusion. That's about as close as it gets, as far as I can tell. Hence me giving this chapter the name I did. Maybe I should have just called it Tywin Plays King. Would have been a little shorter to say that. But this chapter, despite what we said about it being the fourth longest of the book, it's entirely takes place in one room and it's entirely discussion. Easy to miss because so much happens. Well, so much is discussed. (laughs) A man as powerful as Tywin delivering a slew of decisions and commands. Well, that causes a lot to happen. I mean, he is really powerful and he is really in charge and he is running things. I mean, he's running the show. So discussed are the war some political appointments, alliances, almost every region is accounted for. Then they distribute some lands and awards. Then they talk about the wedding. And finally, with Joff's wedding, discussed and secure, or so they think anyway, more Lannister marriages are to be planned afterwards. Fittingly, under Tywin's ruthless efficiency, the council and the chapter are quite orderly. The topics flow into each other. Makes it kind of easy for us as reviewers, doesn't it? (laughs) But this is a bit misleading, isn't it? Councils where so many important decisions need to be made are not supposed to be easy. Mm. 
But again, we know why this goes so smoothly. The decisions were already made. No one's actually making decisions here. It's already been done. Now, the hand of king has this level of authority. I don't, I'm not complaining that Tywin is so in charge here. You know, we've complained a lot about Tywin in general, but this is, I mean, this is his job, right? Uh, even John Aaron or Ned Stark would make a lot of the same decisions here. Certainly not all of them. <laughs> Certainly there are some of the major exceptions like, oh, I don't know, break their knees with hammers. I don't think Ned or John Aaron would do that. And it's, it shows Tywin's casual ruthlessness. But Ned and John Aaron both would have punished those deserters fairly harshly, but probably just straight up execution, actually more likely sending them to the wall, which is a big part of this chapter too, the way Tywin handles that. It's wild to me that men would try to undesert from the gold cloaks though. Every military from any era I've ever heard of, whether it's modern, whether it's super ancient, they're very unforgiving when it comes to desertion, whether it's fiction, fantasy, reality of any timeline, it's pretty much always this way. So the Neds and John Aarons of the world would be enforcing something truly ubiquitous. But Tywin, as is normal for him, he profits. He tries to find a way to profit from other people's issues or anything like that. Other people's shortcomings, other people's breaking of the law. He finds a way to, to benefit himself rather than fulfilling the standard traditions and rules that are in place and knees. <laughs> he breaks all these things. To be clear, the Lord of Cashley Rock wants these men to suffer instead of sending them to defend the realm, right? That's just, in a nutshell, what he's doing here. It's an inhuman version of the principle laid out by Corrin Halfhand, who said the lives of the men of the Night's Watch are to be spent as coin for the realm, every part of them, their bodies and their honor. To me, nothing encapsulates this chapter and the character of Tywin like this part. He gives the command to make an example of the men then stares everyone down to see if anyone disagrees. Of course, they do not. Tyrion suggests a compromise. He doesn't really disagree. He's like, well, maybe some of them should be sent to the wall and the rest of them. And Tywin just overrides him with pure pragmatism, saying, Mance's Raiders army is going to be attacking their enemies. Why help our enemies defend themselves? Never mind that the king is supposed to defend the wall. It's exactly the argument that Stannis comes around on himself. It's exactly the reason he decides to sail north, because Davos convinces him of this. But it's worse in this case, because Tywin also says maybe the right thing to do is make an alliance with Mance Raider? Whoa there. The men we're talking about, they ran away in battle. They're not a threat to anyone. They're not going to do much to hold the wall against the free folk, or let alone the undead. For such a small thing, Tywin is willing to have the Iron Throne make deals with an invading foreign army, right? I mean, this is how quickly he sells out traditions and norms, just for a tiny, minuscule advantage, a perceived advantage. It may not actually amount to anything. But this is the same man who inflicted the brave companions on the Riverlands. So that's the way he thinks. It's a good but subtle example of the richest people having the deepest capacity for cheapness. I mean, for a tiny, tiny advantage, he's willing to do all that. In the case of the North, Tywin seems content to let it all play out, but this is because he knows about the Red Wedding, or at least some level of planning has been done. He knows Roose Bolton will be receiving the North, and that it will be his job to deal with the Ironborn and the Free Folk. When Ty Tyrion is wondering who his father is thinking of when he says... A better option may well present itself. It's surely this. It's Lord Bolton, who has already been a scheming. So this is taken care of, in other words. 
As for the Vale, Tyrion is ready for revenge and wants an army to sort them out. For once, I agree with Mace Tyrell when he says Tyrion would be overmatched in assaulting the Bloody Gate and beyond. But Tywin stops Mace and Tyrion from arguing with the Littlefinger reveal, which, of course, he knows about already, too. So that's also taken care of. Littlefinger's going to head to the Vale and marry Lysa. Simple as that, right? <laughs> now, this results in Tyrion being made Master of Coin. Rather, it has already been decided, as usual. It's a nasty act of sabotage. A lot of people were wondering why exactly Littlefinger stuck Tyrion with this job and why he thought this would be a, a good move to further his goals. And yeah, that is an interesting question. The position of Master Coin is prestigious. In the long term, I think Tyrion probably is a solid choice and there's nothing sabotage or underhanded about it. But in the short term, the devastation left by the war and Littlefinger's cooking of the books makes this a really, really hard job. It keeps him very, very busy. It's very distracting. It's a more than a full-time job. Tyrion isn't aware of all the details, but he says aloud that he suspects this is some kind of trap. He's like, Littlefinger's given me this or suggesting it. There's, it's, I probably don't want it. <laughs> and he's not wrong. Tyrion and Tywin are going to argue about this next chapter. It was Tyrion who sent Marcella to Dorne and Tyrion who suggested the Tyrell marriage in the first place. But since Tyrion never claimed credit for the latter, and Tywin isn't big on praising him anyway, he doesn't get credit for what should be a powerful alliance, as Kevin says to Mace. Quote, When the king is wed to your Marjorie and Marcella to Prince Tristane, we shall all be one great house, Sir Kevin reminded Mace Tyrell. The enmities of the past should remain there. Would you not agree, my lord? Of course, the Lannisters would want the enmities of the past with House Martell to be forgotten. Of course, this benefits them most of all. They're the ones that have built up the most enmities. I just listed off quite a few that Tywin has uh, impressed on the realm, and there's more to come. So this is an extremely self-serving argument, though it is it is true in general. I mean, I don't disagree with Kevin that, yeah, you should try, probably set aside old grievances, but it's hard to miss how self-serving that is. Now, of interest, why did Littlefinger reveal to Tywin that the Tyrells want Sansa? Well, perhaps so they won't suspect that he's the one that steals her away later. This way, Tywin might think it was the Tyrells or somebody else. He wouldn't think it's necessarily the guy who revealed this plot in the first place. Well, he might. But for one way or another, Littlefinger's trying to keep the, the gaze off of him. It gets interesting, though. Littlefinger surely knows that Tywin will marry Sansa to a Lannister in response. He knows that that's going to be Tywin's reaction to finding out the Tyrells want her. And he's right. That is exactly what happens. But Littlefinger is already planning on stealing her away from the Purple Wedding and probably knows Tyrion will be implicated in the murder, or at least hopes that he will. Knowing Littlefinger as we do, this will probably be sweet revenge for him. He doesn't like Tyrion after the deception over the royal marriage offers back in the Clash of Kings, where his old one, two, three uh, scheme with Pycelle and Littlefinger and Varys. So he's sticking Tyrion with this bad job, this distracting job that will keep him from perhaps pursuing revenge or digging deeper into some of these other things. And then he's going to plan on taking his wife away from him after pinning an assassination on him. So maybe while he's distracted with all that, he won't notice all these things coming for him. Littlefinger even names the ship he's going to be traveling on, the Merlin King. He says this in council, and Sansa's going to be on it with him. So he's obviously, that's part of his scheme, is he acts like he's leaving. He acts like he's going to be long gone, 
So no one's going to pin anything on the purple wedding on him. But in fact, he didn't really leave. He's just kind of sitting out there in the bay on his ship waiting to snag Sansa and then leave. So it's his alibi, basically. He does say one true thing, that the reason he needs to leave quickly is the autumn storms. And they do hit a storm because he doesn't leave right away. When he picks Sansa up, two men are thrown overboard. Another one has his back broken or something like that. Speaking of troubles at sea, we get the first mention of a real Kraken. The one seen off the fingers that took down an Ebenezer whaler. Prior Krakens are, are mentioned, but they're like the ones on sigils. and They're theoretical Krakens. Ooh, band name. Theoretical Kraken. Yeah, it's like math rock or math metal, I guess. Hmm. This is the chapter we jumped ahead to when Danny was in Karth, because it's here that Varys tells the council that a three-headed dragon has been born there. Remember, we, uh, we talked about that back when Danny first got to Karth. <laughs> he says it in a way that makes it easy to dismiss as fanciful rumor, which they do. This mention is easily lost amidst this large chapter, right? There's so much going on. It's such a long chapter, and this is just quick mention of three-headed dragon in Karth. So last, we come to the marriages, and for Joss, they note how important it is that the High Septon have a new crown. This is, of course, a new High Septon whose predecessor was killed wearing that prior crown during the riots. Getting the faith on his side is important. Something Cersei is going to botch rather badly later on. (laughs) Among the marriages, even Rob Starks is discussed here, though only when the council is gone. When they speak of the Westerlings... Tyrion is confused by Tywin's lack of anger, and of course, this is because this deal has been made already. Tyrion remembers the reigns of Castamir, and an anecdote that is very telling, which helps piece all of this together. The singers had even made a rather gloomy song of it. Some years later, when Lord Farman of Faircastle drew truculent, Lord Tywin sent an envoy bearing a lute instead of a letter. But once he'd heard the reins of Castamere echoing through his hall, Lord Farman gave no further trouble. So Tywin uses the song itself as a threat. Mm. The large pile of red wedding foreshadowing grows ever larger. There's some additional backstory given in the Spicer Westerling family story that makes things even mm, spicier. It's revealed that Kevin Lannister rejected a marriage offer of Jane Westerling to one of his sons, Martin or Willem. Mm. Now, Maggie the Frog, who is the grandmother of Jane Westerling, predicted the death of all of Cersei's children, and Kevin is about to lose one of his sons. Willem and the Lannisters will, lo- uh, will also lose Tion Frey. Uh, rather, I should say Willem is the name of the son, and the Lannisters will also lose Tion Frey, who is son of Jenna Lannister and Eamon Frey. And Sir Cleos is their son, G- uh, Jenna and Emmons. And he's going to die in the next chapter, or two chapters from now. And that's Tion's uh, older brother, Sir Cleos is. So Tion and Willem are the two that are going to die in the very first line of the next chapter, Catelyn 3. And like I said, Cleos will die in the chapter after that. And Sybil Spicer is going to lose one of her children from all this too. And I don't mean Jane, who will probably hate her forever. I mean literally lost, not figuratively. Reynold Westerling, her eldest son, was probably killed at the Red Wedding. He's the one who took a quarrel in the gut and jumped over the wall into the water when, you know, trying to save Grey Wind. We can hope the Brotherhood Without Banners saved him or something, because uh, he was clearly on the good side. He was not in on the Red Wedding. And this tells us that Sybil wasn't in on it either. She, was in, she had a deal with Tywin 
but she didn't know about the Red Wedding. And in fact, she's going to flat out say this later in A Feast for Crows. She says she'd never have gone along with all this if she knew what would happen to her son. Hmm, interesting. Speaking of what people would do with their sons, I wonder what Ned Stark would do if Tyrion was his son. This is a difficult question because this is the chapter where, and it's appropriate to ask here rather, because this is the chapter where Tywin lays out the blunt truth of his past marriage offers involving Tyrion. Now, Ned would not have laid it out like this, but he may have gotten similar answers to marriage offers involving a, a, a Tyrion or someone like him. Tywin reveals that no one accepted marriage offers involving him, and many of them were rude about it, in particular Hoster Tully. Yet another slap from the Tullys to Tyrion, I suppose. He really <laughs> doesn't have a good relationship with them. Cersei for Willis, though. This is a, another one. It's so different than the show's version of Cersei for Loras, but not really, as it turns out, because neither of these engagements actually happen. The offer of Cersei to Balon. Now, that's just a bizarre thought, but Tywin presents it as so normal. He's like, what's so strange about you marrying Balon Greyjoy? It's an incredibly callous thing to do on top of the strangeness of it, considering Cersei had to be married to Robert. She had a pretty awful time of that. But I guess for Tywin, it's not really that incredible for him to say something like this or do something like this. He demands his family make marriages for the good of the house. That's kind of his method of, operand, uh, method of operation here, his modus operandi. This is, of course, yet more hypocrisy on his part, though. He could take another wife himself easily. I bet Lord Walder made that offer during the Red Wedding back and forth planning. Not, hey, let's get married, Tywin, you and me. <laughs> but, you know, they're sending letters back and forth trying to make a deal. I'm sure that occurred to Lord Walder. Hey, you could marry one of my daughters. I got a billion of them. Tywin, I'm sure, was like, nah, because he nahs all of everyone. You know, would, yeah. would the ship name for Walder Frey and Tywin be like Waldwin? <laughs> Waldwin, Ty Walder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So. Tider. <laughs> you know who else I'm guessing Tywin asked for, or uh, Walder asked for, and all these negotiations? He probably asked for Sansa. Everybody wants Sansa. I said everybody wants Jamie, but everybody wants Sansa, really. But of course, as we pointed out before, Sansa for Tyrion is the plan. And that's been the plan for a little while. Littlefinger would, saw it coming. Tyrion saw it coming. He, they say, well, what about your, you know, we're going to talk about your marriage. He's like, you're going to marry me to Sansa, aren't you? And that highlights what we've been saying for a while. Anyone playing the Game of Thrones or paying attention to politics in this story is going to realize that Sansa's claim is this huge dangling golden apple. Tywin notices, Tyrion notices, Littlefinger notices, Varys notices, the Tyrells know. It's just pretty straightforward. Tywin has unmarried male family. There you go. It really is that simple and that obvious to a large percentage of the nobility in court. To people paying attention, it's, it's, it's very straightforward. Which is why Littlefinger essentially planned for it in advance. Him telling on the Tyrells sped up the process of marrying Sansa off. It didn't launch it, right? It just moved it up on the list of priorities. It was going to happen regardless of what Littlefinger did. He just meddled to change the timing. Am I curious what Varys thinks here, though? Yes, very. What does he think of Sansa and her claim? We know he's aware of it. We know, clearly, he's super on top of such things. But mm, he's watching all this play out. <laughs> it's clear, it seems clear enough what he thought of Tywin. 
meaning Varus. There's solid evidence he expected Tyrion would kill Tywin when, you know, when that comes later with the crossbow. And if that didn't happen, well, Varus would probably just kill Tywin on his own. There's no reason I can think of why Varus wouldn't simply assassinate Tywin when the time came. Right? That seems to be his modus operandi. Now consider our discussion on John and Mance Raider, how killing Mance would cause the Free Folk army to fall apart because he's such an important leader. This scene is roughly the equivalent. It perhaps demonstrates more than anything Tywin's effectiveness and importance to the Lannister cause. There's not someone ready to step up and take his job. Well, actually, there is someone ready to take his job. It just didn't seem that way at the time. More on that in a minute. Even if you ignore morality, which is the main problem with Tywin, I've criticized him as a military leader, too. I think he's kind of mediocre there. He's a terrible parent. He's an awful example for others. But he's quite effective here. I mean, he's a terrible human being. Great character. And the pragmatic quality of his strategy here is evident. But there's a huge flaw in it. He's the only one capable of managing the strategy he's laid out. If he's gone, they're left with a plan that requires someone like him to run things, and there isn't someone else like that. There isn't someone else that everyone's afraid of, that's got this ruthlessness, that's got this reputation. Someone who can intimidate vassals with a bard. That They won't have that when he's gone. So at this point, Tywin is likely thinking Joffrey's going to succeed him in charge in a couple of years when he reaches his age of majority. Tywin certainly doesn't expect that one, let alone both of them, will be dead soon. Because of Tywin, the Lannisters have more power than ever, but more enemies than ever. It's a lot like the very same financial illusions we alluded to with Littlefinger's shenanigans. Tywin will, next chapter, say, crown incomes have never been higher. And Tyrion will report with, crown debts have never been higher. We can't spend these extra income. We have to pay off the debt. We have larger, we, our expenses are as large as our incomes. So Tywin's been vicious to the realm in enforcing his will, and the realm will be vicious unto his family in return. Only his ruthlessness keeps that from happening. He's just too formidable. It's hard to collect a blood debt from a man who's literally the richest on the continent, runs the Iron Throne, and has men like Gregor Clegane at the ready. And Gregor is part of the point here, though, as one of the biggest blood debts Tywin has ever incurred over the years is the one owed to House Martell. So Tywin is effectively a king and has a lot in common with a mob boss, right? He's overly concerned with pride and power and wealth and respect, openly about honor and loyalty, but not really. <laughs> actually he's extremely ruthless and pragmatic and bloody and greedy and hypocritical when Tywin is whacked <laughs> men like John Connington and Stannis see it as a game changer Varys too of course and Littlefinger and of course that's when there's a twist when Kevin is in charge it actually goes surprisingly well I think a lot of people were surprised by that both characters in world and readers but he doesn't rule like Tywin he doesn't step up and just take Tywin's place and do the things Tywin was doing. He rules very much the opposite way of Tywin. That's part of the surprise because Kevin is Tywin's right-hand man for so long. I think it's that he realizes a lot of the things that we're saying here. He's not in a position to push everyone around like his brother. He doesn't, he's not that ruthless. He's not that scary. People aren't as afraid of Kevin Lannister. But still, Kevin was doing such a good job that Varys kills him and says... Basically, in essence, I'm killing you because you're doing a good job. And this is going to put Cersei back in charge. And she makes 
my young king look incredible by comparison. My young king mean Aegon the Sixth, Varys's young king, of course. So had Tywin ruled the way Kevin did from the start, I suspect he might have had better results, if not in the short term, certainly the long term, because Kevin shows us at least a glimpse of how things would have gone with a much nicer but still effective ruler. And it's interesting to consider how it went. Cersei is the most powerful Lannister in King's Landing at the start. Then Tyrion when he's hand, acting hand, right? Then Tywin, right now, basically what we're living in. Then Kevin. And then as we've just outlined, it goes back to Cersei <laughs> thanks to Varys' meddling. Yeah. Some thoughts from Joe. Can there be any greater contrast than the Battle of the Fist of the First Men and the Small Council of King's Landing? I think George chooses to follow Sam's chapter with Tyrion specifically to place how trivial and pointless all this squabbling is when there's a horde of dead ice things coming toward them. But of course, this chapter will slowly move from a chattering council to an intensely personal decision that is made for Tyrion. Thus, George always wins us back. Yeah, it is a huge thing and, and it's served extra by how long the chapter is, how much is happening. It's, you really just get into it and it's easy to forget, like Joe says about all that stuff in the North, but only for a minute. Then you're like, oh, wait, the North, holy crap. Especially because they talk about it in this chapter. Just to get across the, the point that this is kind of new water, new ground for everyone. <laughs> we have this near comical scramble for chairs. We, we sort of got a version of this on the TV show. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> Tyrion squeaky chair and all that. Yeah. It's pretty funny. We get, a, we get a different one later in the show, too. Like, I think they did two, two versions of it, if I remember correctly. And so this is, I think, where the inspiration for that came from in this scene, which is, of course, this is a much larger group of people sitting at a much, much larger table. But that's normal, the TV version having fewer people. So this is a newly constructed government. So it, it makes sense that people would be jockeying for position. In this case, it's quite literal. They're jockeying for position. And there's some symbolism there, but also in, in general, but also just about the fact that Tywin and Tyrion are on opposite sides of the table, which is uh, a bit of a theme for this book, certainly for this, this part of the book, if not more of it. It's also important to note this is kind of a re-release for Tyrion. It's like his coming back out party. He's been sort of behind closed doors, recovering and all that since the Blackwater. And this is the first time he's seeing how Evan reacts to his face, like in a group, like lots of people staring at his scar and just, he has, he's feeling discomfort for how unrecognized he went in for his achievements and all that. We'll just mix all that together. And Tyrion is just rather bitter, a rather bitter chap, as Joe puts it. That's how, you know, Joe wrote it because Americans don't say a rather bitter chap. It is a wonderful phrase. I should say a rather bitter chap more often. I like the sound of it. It just wasn't raised on saying chap. <laughs> Joe also points out that Varus is in full Lannister mode here, needing to endear himself all over again. He sees how powerful they are, you know, sees which way the wind is blowing. Tywin is in charge. If he wants to kill Tywin, if we said he surely can if he wants to, it's too soon. I guess by later in the book, it won't be too soon. But Joe wonders if Varys knows that Roos threw this battle in Duskendale. And when Rob, of course, hears about Duskendale later, he's like, Duskendale? Why on earth do they do that? Varys is going to have a better sense of it. I think Varys is going to see something like that, realize it's not a blunder, or realize it's, it's, he knows Roos Bolton well enough to know that it's too 
big of a mistake to be a mistake. Vars is going to look at that and say, oh, this is a sign that Roose Bolton is going to betray the North. If he hadn't already figured that out, which he may have. So if he had already figured that out, either through reading messages or other context clues, he certainly would be sold on it by now. So there's some thoughts on Lysa here. Uh, there's a quote. Oh, said Mace Tyrell cheerfully. Women have no stomach for war. Let her be, I say. She's not like to trouble us. Now, I bet that's not a great thing for Cersei to hear. And if Cersei <laughs> not liking the Tyrells, that's not going to help. But think about all the women who do have stomach for war, like the Sand Snakes and Arianne Martell and Daenerys and, of course, Lady Stoneheart and <laughs> Lysa's sister soon enough so hmm, you're not uh, you're not so accurate there mace tyrell the tyrells make a huge leap in terms of power in the reach which is quite an accomplishment when you are already liege lord they're already the the top house in the reach but they get brightwater keep it's the rich getting richer and it's a change it's this is not how westeros has been handled something that maybe we should have made a bigger deal out of when talking about how tywin is running things and how he's overriding traditions not just is he overriding traditions, he's changing, he's allowing things like this to happen. This is not normal. In, on, in, in the past, under the Targaryen regime, you would not have houses collecting multiple castles like this. They don't allow power to be collected so much in singular families because they do not want any one family getting to the point where they're able to challenge the throne. So a situation where the Tyrells have both Highgarden and Brightwater Keep not very likely to happen under the Targaryens. So the way rewards and titles are being given out shows a bit of a difference. Now, of course, these powerful rich lords are all about, you know, making themselves more powerful, putting more distance between themselves and the rest of the lords in the realm. They have no qualms about keeping some sort of balance of power like this. Tyrion being made master coin was, was arranged, like we said, ahead of time which makes us a little wonder a little more what else was going on because we talked about how some of this was, was arranged ahead of the council meeting and Tywin and Littlefinger clearly talked about stuff in, in, including the Tyrell plot to marry Sansa and the stuff about Tyrion being made master of coin. What else did they talk about was because he, he clearly also mentioned this thing about Lysa that was also settled that he was going to go marry her. So what other deal was made? What other arrangements were made? Hmm. Good question. It's tough to say, but it's something to keep our eyes on and think about for the future. Some, a couple thoughts from Nina. Balon Greyjoy showing what a blockhead he is. I like that term, blockhead. <laughs> Coming to the Iron Throne after doing the work for the Lannisters and saying, give me rewards, please. I mean, the Spicers, the Boltons, and the Freys are kind of already offering but they're not asking for rewards. They're saying, hey, we're, we will give you something in exchange for a reward. Whereas the Greyjoys are like, hey, I'm going to attack your enemies. And after I attack your enemies, I would like you to give me something. That's, that's not how Tywin operates. He's not going to give you something when you've already given it to him for nothing. Randall Tarley has every reason to be pissed off at Mace here. There is, this is some groundwork for the quote-unquote friends in the reach that Aegon VI supposedly has. And Randall Tarly is highly, is high on the list of people who are probably one of those friends of the reach. And here's an example. Not only has he 
spent the better part of two decades listening to Mace claim credit for Ashford, which was his victory, really, uh, against Robert, uh, in, at Robert's Rebellion. But Randall probably expected Brightwater Keep, or at least thought that he had a good chance to get it, because his wife was, or is, Melissa Florent. And she is the uh, most senior Florent after Lord Alistair, because Alistair, that's, that's her daughter. And Alistair is the one that just gave up Brightwater Keep by being uh, hand to the king for Stannis. He's the one we're going to see in jail with Davos next week. So you could see why Randall would think that his family deserved some of that. And you can see that once again, Mace Tyrell is pushing him aside, taking credit, taking lands that he has a, a right to. So you could see the seeds of discontent building there. Subtle moment when Kevin looks to Tywin, who nods. Then Kevin reveals the Sansa marriage bit. It's like he was waiting for permission. You know, they had a prearranged signal, perhaps. There's some meta from the former plot lines George R. Martin had imagined back in the early 90s. Recall that Tyrion was going to be the one to take and sack Winterfell instead of Ramsay. That was the original plan. Contrast that to this marriage to Sansa and Tywin telling them that he could take Winterfell. Now, of course, in that same outline, Sansa was going to have already been married to Joffrey and had kids with him. So I don't think that he was going to have them get married in the original plan. But still, it results in Tyrion going to Winterfell one way or the other. And it's being suggested here. Of course, we don't think that's actually how it's going to go in the books, but it's, it still fits as Tywin expecting that from his son. So let's look at the particular marriage offers that that Tywin brought up that Tyrion got or that were made that were rejected because just for fun, it should be interesting. There is a high tower marriage suggested that might've been Lanesse. She's the right age of all the, the daughters of house high tower that she would have been the most likely fit. So that's a funny, what if instead of Jorah, she could have married Tyrion. <laughs> Jan Royce is mentioned. He has a daughter named Isilla bronze. Jan that is. She's the one that marries the very same Michael Redfort that Mia Stone is in love with. And so clearly no Tyrion for him, or for her, rather. Oster Tully rejected Tyrion to Lysa. So Lysa was going to marry Jamie, but then not marry Tyrion. They suggested that as an alternative, and Hoster's like, nope. And he said something rude in the pro. I think it was that he wanted a whole man for his daughter, something like that. One of them said that. I think it was Hoster. Delena Florent, who is Edric Storm's mother, was, uh, was also a suggestion. What a complication that would have been in these wars. If a, we just talk about the Florent and Brightwater Keep and everything and Stannis having the Florence. Imagine if Tyrion was married to the, the mother of Edric Storm. That would have been, what an entangled web that would have been. George himself probably wouldn't have wanted to deal with that. It's like, well, that means this person would think, nah, forget it. No, I'm not doing that. And Lollies, of course, is suggested now, that's also got a little bit of irony to it because Bronn ends up marrying Lawless and gives her first child the name Tyrion. <laughs> that's not his child. That's the one which she you know, was raped during the riots. So uh, there's all these little, little tidbits to follow through, all these little lines of uh, possibilities. Some more comments from y'all. Noga Frankel gave us a lot of reasons why Tywin's decision to marry Tyrion to Sansa is really bad optics for the realm. Because we, as we pointed out, Tyrion is is very misliked by the general population. They misjudge him. They judge him on his appearance. And he doesn't really do a lot to, as we 
talked a lot about in Clash of Kings, he does very little to push back on that. In fact, he kind of leans into it. But the realm kind of sees Sansa as the opposite. She's, and they're more right about this. You know, they're wrong about Tyrion. But Sansa really is fairly innocent. And they're right that she's just 12. And you can't blame her for anything, really. So the realm seeing this person they hate, this ugly monkey demon, you know, that's their perception of him. Marrying this poor, young, innocent girl who's helpless. That's just not a good look. They don't like that. That's not going to look shine well on the Lannisters. It just looks kind of brutal. It looks uh, un- it looks cruel, and it is cruel. It is so. Even though Tyrion's not nearly as bad, not even close to as bad as people think he is, and well, we'll get more into it when they actually when this actually happens. But yeah, it looks really bad, and it gives you an idea of how Tywin sees things because Tywin he's in one of the many forms his hypocrisy takes is acting like he doesn't care what people think. Well, he does care what people think. It's just he doesn't care certain things. He doesn't care if they call him cruel. He doesn't care if they call him heartless or ruthless. In fact, ruthless he might take as a compliment. But if they call him weak, now that he doesn't like. If they, call, if they mock him, he definitely hates mockery. That's a no dog. So he, he's a little complicated, actually. But when you get down to it, you can kind of see where these patterns break. If it's mockery, if it's insulting... He that's the kind of stuff he hates. But if it's just calling him evil, well, he doesn't care about that. A major discussion on our Facebook group was how much plotting had been done in advance. Just what level of red wedding plotting had been reached to this level. Roos, Lord Walder, Tywin, and Sybil Spicer. How much each knew and how much didn't know. I, I can't possibly recreate it all. It's a very good discussion. I highly recommend it. But it's also not one we can get to an answer on. But we could get maybe we'll get a little closer to the truth. There's a lot of subtleties to, to parse together here. Tracy McMillan notes a subtle moment. Lord Redwine gets a major tax rebate on his wine and proposes they all break open a cask of Arbor Gold, which is an appropriate thing to be celebrating with because as we pointed out, Arbor Gold is the wine of deception. <laughs> so they're all kind of lying to themselves about how great they are and how much they deserve rewards. Archmaester Rennie points out to Tywin referring to that disgusting slander regarding... Cersei and Jamie sleeping together and he says that you getting married will help put that aside and put that talk to rest. It's funny, yeah, people will start to- will stop talking about you sleeping with your brother if you go marry Balon Greyjoy. <laughs> That's all you got to do to stop the rumors. <laughs> Small price to pay, right? Eesh. Stefan B wonders about the look that passes between Mace and Paxter Redwine when Littlefinger says he'll marry Lysa Aaron and wonders if Lord Redwine was at Bitterbridge. He was not. Lord Redwine joined the, the war effort after the Tyrells made that arrangement, and in part because he couldn't join the war before because his sons were hostages. But once the Tyrells and Lannisters had an arrangement, well, his sons weren't really hostages anymore, or they still were, but they were now hostages of, of an alliance rather than hostages of two people on opposite sides of the war. So there's a lot of little subtle moments like this where people kind of react to Tywin just telling them how things are going to be. Related to that and related to the friends in the reach concept that we brought up with Randall Tarley, Mathis Rowan, who is another strong candidate to be a friend of Aegon VI, friend of John Connington, he's fit to gag, as Tywin or as Tyrion notes, when... Elia's dead children are brought up because they're mentioning justice for the Martells. And everybody's like, uh, you're the one who killed the Martell kids there, Tywin. 
but, but Tyrion notes that red wine has no reaction at all. So he's excited about the wine and other stuff, but doesn't care about this hypocrisy, or at least keeps a stony demeanor. Interestingly about red wine is we talked about how his sons don't seem so bad. Horror and slobber, they get these uh, mocking nicknames, but they seem like decent guys. He, however, is not. Uh, at least if what Littlefinger says about him is true, which it might not be because Littlefinger, if we're putting piecing all this together, red wine having a, a look with Mace when they see Littlefinger doing this thing. Maybe Littlefinger's trying to slander Redwine because he doesn't like him or he suspects him of, of trying to check his power. But Littlefinger hints that Redwine's a pedophile. I mean, we know that Redwine, that his wife is much younger. Not that that's unusual. That's true, but, but I, like, I don't know if that was arranged or not. But Yeah, still. we're not sure about that. But yeah, Redwine is described as particularly old, you know, mm-hmm. balding, stooped and all that. Yeah. So even if he's not a pedophile, it seems like he would be into like very young yeah. women. And of course, Littlefinger knows this because he says it's from his brothel ownership that he finds this out. So <laughs> that is uh, very telling. But anyway, it's interesting to piece all these things together. So it tells you that we know quite a lot about Paxter Redwine. And if we look at all these little aspects of his personality, it helps us figure out what this look means, whether it's a, he's just, oh, this lowborn master coin guy is rising higher, or if they're actually concerned about his maneuvering and what he's going to do. And it makes sense that they would be, because even if Redwine wasn't at Bitterbridge, he may have had conversations with Pax, with uh, Mace Tyrell and or Olena. Again, Olena is a Redwine, so they could have had discussions about all this. It's If any family is going to be included in the Tyrell plans, it would be the Redwine, since they're the, a close relation of Olena. And well, you can see how this all pieces together, even without knowing all the exact details. Gotta love Pycelle's dirty looks at Tyrion. <laughs> He's uh, missing his beard and all that. It's something that's kind of hard for me to picture. But I, I just try to picture Julian Glover as Pycelle with his beard hacked off. And it's just, I can't do it. <laughs> that beard is just, it's so, it's so glorious. <laughs> Tree Girl with a great take says that if Tywin treated Tyrion the way he treated Kevin, then he could have that kind of strong relationship with someone that is close to him, that he can trust. Not just trust, meaning from a loyalty standpoint, but from an effectiveness standpoint. If they had worked together and established a working relationship, it could have gone pretty well. And we, we noted before that they have some personality issues, differences that maybe cause some friction, but it doesn't seem like much of an effort was ever made. And yeah, I mean, to be fair, they, Tywin and Kevin grew up together. It's different than father-son. But still, you can see a, a path that probably would have worked better. Certainly couldn't have been worse. And that's it for the beefy, long Tyrion 3 chapter. We knew this would take up a big chunk of the episode, and it did, in fact, take up about 50 minutes. And it's time to move on. Catelyn 3. The one with the dead prisoners, a.k.a. Karstark, loses his head. Quote. They carried the corpses in upon their shoulders and laid them beneath the dais. My tone of voice was perfect for such a dark thing. <laughs> really, that is quite a first sentence, too, because on, you know, on reread, you know who they're talking about. But on the first read, it's like, whoa, who? Who is this? Who's dead? It's, it's quite a start. You're immediately wondering who they're talking about. The toll of war on the warrior can be great. 
It's Rickard Karstark is a prime example of this amongst the nobility. He's the mad father, perhaps an inversion of the mad grieving mother trope, which I alluded to last time, I believe. Maybe he's the mad vindictive father. I don't know. George R. R. Martin seems to like making proto versions of characters like how Stannis is proto Danny. I mean, Dragonstone tries to win the throne, but then heads north to fight the others instead you know, usurped by by a younger member of their family, things like that. Lots of parallels. Beric is kind of like proto-Bloodraven with his sitting in a weirwood throne and sort of being half undead and having one eye and a black cloak, all that stuff. Lord Leicester here in Arya 4, two chapters from now, is kind of like Eustace Osgrey from The Sworn Sword. Um, we'll talk about a little bit more of that when we get there. You know, when so let me give you a quote to, to lead us into where this, where this is going. When Jon Snow tells Rickard Karstark's daughter, Alice Karstark, Lord Karstark slew two prisoners, my lady, unarmed boys, squires in a cell. The girl did not seem surprised. My father never bellowed like the great John, but he was no less dangerous in his wrath. So the character we should be most comparing to Rickard Karstark is Lady Stoneheart. He is the proto Stoneheart. Revenge is first and foremost in his mind. Stoneheart bellows even less than Rickard Karstark, who doesn't bellow as loud as Great John. In fact, she doesn't bellow at all. But she's even more dangerous in her rope. Let's go to the details here. He kills some of Ed Muir's guards and acts as if it's not murder because any man who steps between a father and his vengeance asks for death. I mean, that's a very loose interpretation of a rule that isn't even a rule. But it's this Aegon the unworthiest declaration he makes shortly before his death that really shows how deep Lord Rickard's combination of grief, need for revenge, and entitlement ran. He gives the hand of his daughter, as in the one child of his not dead or captured, to any person, not just among his men, who kills Jamie Lannister. No better example of how awful Karstark's decree is comes when we learn that Vargo Hode himself is like, oh, I'm in. I want to claim that reward. I mean, you're inspiring Vargo Hodes and, and of the world. So instead, to forestall that, Lord Bolton offers Vargo Harrenhal. That is what we find out the, the big part of the reasoning is for that offer. Meanwhile, what was Karstark thinking? Well, I don't suppose he was thinking much at all. But what did he expect Rob would do to him for this? Perhaps he really did expect to be left alive. That's what he says. He says, Rob's only going to scold him. He says, well, he challenges him to take harsh measures that might make him look like a hypocrite, right? Never mind that this is probably not even a binding decree from Lord Rickard, right? He's like, his offer dies with him. How is, who's the killer of Jamie going to collect this reward from this guy who made this outlandish offer that his king is going to re react to negatively. So Rob's in a position where he doesn't want to be a hypocrite, but it's worse for him to look dishonorable or, and to go against his own pride. So hypocrisy is, is the lesser of two evils for Rob. It's painful to see Rob concerned with warning Lord Bolton about this betrayal. That's just, Oh man. <laughs> It doesn't even matter at this point, though, because nothing's going to stop Roos from betraying Rob. That's, that, that bird's already flown. 
It's also painful to hear Rob say that they've heard nothing from Sir Roderick in the North because Sir Roderick's been dead for some time. What a contrast Rob's rule is to Tywin's. Rob gives not an inch on the matter of Lord Karstark, no matter how pragmatic it might be to manage otherwise. While Tywin sells out the Night's Watch for a tiny theoretical advantage, not even a tangible advantage. Rob states this out loud, quote, Cat all over me. Will the Lannisters <laughs> thank me for Lord Rickard's head? Will the phrase? No, it's appropriate. We're in a Catelyn chapter. Yeah. No, said Brendan Blackfish, blunt as ever. Nevertheless, he is his father's son. But as a king, as we're reminded here. Rob reached down with both hands, lifted the heavy bronze and iron crown and set it back atop his head. And suddenly he was a king again. Lord Rickard dies. So I suppose George R. Martin and Catelyn both agree in principle that this is kingly behavior because it's obvious it's not subtle. He puts his crown back on and makes a decision. Uh, but of course, the execution and the aftermath are messy. It's done in front of the River on Heart Tree. Scott Warbin points out this is a bit similar to the execution Bran sees in his in his dream in A Dance with Dragons when the wed, when the uh, Heart Tree is going farther back in time as his vision proceeds. Stefan B likens this moment to John and Jano's slint in A Dance with Dragons. Both slint and Karstark expected a much lighter punishment. Of course. When they find out what the punishment really is going to be, Slint goes to the block crying and Karstark goes with dignity. But hey, they can't all be the same. It may often be overstated how Rob's decision to execute Lord Karstark hurt him. Honestly, I think too much of big deal is made out of this because the Karstark horsemen had already left before the execution. They had already fled to go look for Jamie before Karstark was condemned. So what was going to change? Nothing was going to stop that. The Karstark footmen were with Roose Bolton so they've already been set up to die at the Red Wedding. I mean, there's there's no hope for them either. So it, it, not that Karstark didn't do an awful thing here, but Rob couldn't have really gained much advantage by keeping Karstark alive or by not telling people what happened. It wouldn't have made that much difference. But it's not just the military aspect we're concerned with. It's what the execution does to Rob as a person, as Jane and Kat discuss. It is a hard thing to take a man's life. I know. I told him he should use a headsman. When Lord Tywin sends a man to die, all he does is give the command. It's easier that way, don't you think? Yes, said Catelyn. But my lord husband taught his sons that killing should never be easy. And that really gets to the heart of it, right? We were just talking about how Tywin is just doing the easier way. All he does is give the command. <laughs> it's easier that way, don't you think? What a poignant statement on Tywin's ruling style versus Rob's ruling style. And taking the easy way out versus being a responsible ruler and upholding traditions and, and norms and things that you don't want to fall apart. You want to keep these societal things in place because they have value. You don't want them to fall apart because, well, all, then you have chaos and people not being able to trust each other, people killing each other at dinner, things like that. People not being able to trust in things like guest right, which of course is the biggest societal norm that Tywin is going to shatter in a little while. And Tywin also casually breaks men's knees with hammers knowing they'll starve. I mean, uh, there's just so, other, so many other examples. I don't even need to give more. Y'all are quite aware of this concept now. So I'll say again how much this chapter 
and Tyrion three highlight the massive differences in ruling style. While Rob's aunt won't even let him pass his army through her lands, Sybil Spicer, Walder Frey, and Roose Bolton are basically offering incredible betrayals. They're saying, hey, I'll betray these guys for you. Catelyn has understandable fear for Sansa throughout all this. She's worried they'll retaliate for Willem and Teon, but that's fear speaking. Again, her claim is too valuable for that. Sansa is quite, quote-unquote, safe in that regard. They're not going to kill her. She's not safe in other ways, but because of her claim, they're not going to kill her. Now, in Kat's next chapter, which is actually a good while from now, 15 chapters from now, she's going to find out about the wedding of Tyrion and Sansa. So Kat and Jane have their scene together. Let's talk about that. Quote. Sometimes, Catelyn said slowly, the best thing you can do is nothing. When I first came to Winterfell, I was hurt whenever Ned went to the godswood to sit beneath his heart tree. Part of his soul was in that tree, I knew, a part that I would never share. Yet, without that part, I soon realized he would not have been Ned. Jane, child, you have wed the North, as I did. And in the North, the winters will come. Part of his soul, eh, hmm, that's interesting. I really wonder about that. You, the mystical side of things, it, with the way George loves to play with language, words, uh, phrases like that just make you go, hmm, wait a minute, part of his soul, is that literal? Or is that both literal and figurative? I don't know. Yeah, I think it is both because the Starks are definitely, their soul, so to speak, whatever that means in this context, is, it seems to be part of that, that heart tree. So Jane wants sons and suggests Eddard and Brandon with similar names that Sansa suggested. She suggested Eddard, Brandon, and, and Rickon. So, hmm, interesting. That's cool. She also describes the posset her mother is feeding her, the one that is supposedly a fertility brew, but it's actually the complete opposite. And interestingly, too, to compare Sansa and Jane a little more, Sansa thinks that she's going to teach her sons to hate Lannisters. I'm thinking Jane Westerling, if she has sons, is going to hate them as well. And that may pass down to her kids. But ah, this is just so similar, again, to what Lysa had to deal with from Hoster that Kat wasn't quite able to figure out, which is it sticks the knife in a little that Jane says, oh, I'd love to have an Eddard and a Brandon as my kids. And then Kat's like, she says to she whispers to Hosper, who's Hoster lying in his bed. She wants an Eddard and a Brandon and maybe a Hoster. Here, <laughs> he does not deserve that. <laughs> so, of course, we're thinking of, of him dosing Lysa the way that, in a similar way to what Sybil Spicer is doing to Jane here. And again, Kat is happening right in front of her and she doesn't know it. Not Kat's fault. How could she have known? But it's brutal irony here. On the other hand, there's a little bit of humor the, the chapter ends with Kat thinking of Jane's hips, which is a great all-time fandom snafu, meaning George actually made a mistake. There's a couple of intentional mistakes in the books like Sansa and the kiss from Sandor, but this is just a straight-up error. He described her hips very differently when Jamie sees them, and that got the attentive fandom to think that, that Jane was pregnant. And of course, thinking Jane is pregnant is a huge deal that spins all sorts of wheels that Rob's going to have a son, and or even if he has a daughter, that's a child of his, that's the kingdom of the North, blah, blah, blah. It's a huge deal, but it was an unfortunate mistake. The hips did lie 
<laughs> Thank you, Shakira. So, Jane, not pregnant. Some notes from Joe. Oh, dear, how difficult for us to now have to go through a Catelyn chapter after her and her family's destruction has just been discussed and threateningly smiled about over in King's Landing with Tywin likely feeling very smug about himself. Even for first-time readers, they know Catelyn doesn't know what danger they're all in, so the tension is raised from the get-go. Yeah, well said, Joe. That's true. I was distracted overly by the ruling styles, Tywin's hypocrisy, and the cost of being honorable, things like that. Didn't really think about how casually they're discussing the destruction of the Starks piecemeal, and how that is another big contrast even if the Lannisters were defeated by the Starks, it wouldn't be nearly as ruthless or bloody. There would be some killings for sure, especially Joffrey, but uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be the way Tywin would do it. It seems there's a lot of foreshadowing for Catelyn's body being pulled from the river. Yeah, absolutely. This one I didn't necessarily attribute, but Joe suggests we have these two children's bodies soaking wet, wrinkled, skin white, and blood red. Yeah, because of the rain, same difference. They're waterlogged the way Catelyn's body will be from floating downriver, which, as it said at the time, in a savage mockery of Tully funeral customs, which we'll be seeing fairly soon, too, with Hoster only, um, I think it's the, the one I said, 15 chapters, and I think he dies in the next chapter of hers. If not, it's certainly the one after. And she thinks of Sansa, Catelyn does, in a similar way in, when she's worried about what they'll do to her. And it's, of course, all coming back to how Arya and Nymeria are going to find Catelyn. A couple thoughts from Nina. It's interesting that Catelyn 3 follows immediately after Tyrion 3. In the latter chapter, we see Tywin hand wave away his complicity in the murders of two captive children wrapped in Lannister cloaks, a move that made Rowan, as we pointed out, look, quote, fit to gag. Now we have Rickard Karstark murdering two captive Lannister children while attempting to justify it. And Rob and Catelyn are like, no, you can't justify it. So a great parallel there. Uh, one of these sets of kids was so long ago, but even someone like Lord Rowan, who is in this council room, ostensibly on these guys' side, he still can't handle that hypocrisy. He can't keep his face you know, from contorting a bit. And of course, this is so very similar Two dead children of the family that most resembles the Targaryens because of, you know, Jamie and Cersei and being above the rules and they're the most powerful family since the Targaryens, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a wonderful parallel, wonderful, tragic parallel. Good catch, Nina. Rickard has a lot of nerve justifying the murder of Tion and Willem as the ordinary cost of war, considering his own son, Harrion, was taken captive after the Green Fork and kept at Harrenhal unkilled. I'm sure he wouldn't have taken kindly to Amory Lorch, who, not the kindest to prisoners, if he had murdered Harrion or let him die through neglect. And he wouldn't have just been like, oh, well, in war we kill our enemies, which is what he says in this chapter. He wouldn't have been saying that about his own son. Yep, yep. Again, that's why I said that Karstark's reaction isn't just over the top and dishonorable, it's entitled. He thinks he's entitled to this revenge no matter what. Jane is smart to go to Catelyn for advice since Catelyn has a number of parallels in Jane, who is a sort of foreign, meaning from another realm. She's a Westerner. 
know, Westerners and wet, wet, wet Riverlanders have a lot in common, but still technically that's, it's, it's a par- it works as a parallel. Just like Catelyn was a wartime bride of a Stark ruler in her time. Both, of, so we both have wartime Stark marriages here. And it was in fact her first son, Rob, that was the one conceived during war. And so it is kind of history repeating itself in a sense. And Jane would know all this and it would, not only is she the mother-in-law, it makes sense that they would talk, but she would know if she knows her history at all, that Catelyn has been in a similar place. With regards to Rickard's claim of kinship and kinslaying, it's not really true. This is super far disconnected. I mean, the the Carhold, Carlin Stark anecdote is mentioned in this chapter. It's like a thousand years ago. I mean, this is not really close enough to trigger kinslaying. And Nina says that degree of kinship matters too, not just in distance for generations, but it's already pointed out that killing a parent's worse than killing a sibling and killing a sibling is worse than killing a cousin. So that's kind of, it's already sort of implied that the closeness of kin is relevant in terms of how bad it is. And this is just too far apart. I mean, it's just the name Car Stark that reminds people of that degree of kinship. There's probably just a degree of kinship with the Umbers and the Manderleys and all the other houses that the Starks have married into and back and forth with over the generations. So, yeah, this was a, a reach by Ricard Car Stark here. Nina and Tree Girl both with a nice catch here with regards to Lysa and Kat thinking how she goes off and hides when she's done something wrong. Well, the quote, in fact, was she would run and hide when she'd done something wrong. And that's kind of what she's doing here. She's definitely hiding in the veil, doesn't want to have any part in anything, hope people forget about her. And well, she did do something wrong. She murdered John Aaron. Mm, fits pretty well. Yoga sure. F uh, asked originally, do we have any case in the history of Westeros of a highborn lady being executed after a trial? And this was all inspired by people talking about Catelyn, hmm. about whether she should have been executed. Okay. Or whether if she wasn't executed, whether Karstark should have been. And so, for example, I, the only thing I could really think of that was remotely close was someone like Alice Haraway, one of Magor's brides, who didn't have a trial, but was deemed as guilty and so killed. Hmm. Um, but really, we couldn't think of anyone. And so Noga F. continued and said, killing a noble woman is an act of a madman. It is never a normal punishment, um, which is interesting. We couldn't think of any. That's a very good point. Yeah, you know, that's that's really true. Like executing treasonous lords. You see that every once in a while. Uh, I could think of another one like uh, with our recent House Blackwood episode. We talked about Agnes Blackwood being executed oh. by by uh, Heron Harwin Hardhand. Can't believe I didn't think of that one when we just did that episode. But that was also kind of unusual and the Iron, that's Ironborn law, not Seven Kingdoms law. Yeah, uh, true. Really. So the good call. And you know, another example comes to mind outside of Westeros, which is <clears throat> she has a Westerosi parallel and we wonder what happened to her. Lady Mad Donnell Lawston, right? Mm, in yeah. Westeros, she was set down because she, quote unquote, turned to the Black Arts. We don't know what happened to her, no. whether they executed her or not. She was just removed from her lordship of Harrenhal. But what did they do to her? Did they just like send her to the Silent Sisters or did they actually execute her? Well, the real world parallel to her was Lady Elizabeth Bathory, who s- murdered something like 600 peasants 
via torture and all sorts of bloody ways. They convicted her or basically put her on trial and it was impossible to basically impossible to say she was not guilty, but they didn't really do it. They just no. le- basically just put her in house arrest for the rest of her life. Just let her live in her castle and just with restrictions. So oh. even she wasn't put to death. I'm sure there are also other examples where the, the father, the brother, someone messed up and was treasonous and the, the, the other women in the family were just killed. Yeah, that's, like that's there, possible. That, there are examples of that too. It just wasn't their agency and them on trial. Right, right. You, you certainly, that's true because you certainly, there's no shortage of examples of lords being executed. That is not hard to find at all. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good catch there. And it, it's just another example of why people, it ties in really well to this discussion here because of what Rickard Karstark has said, hey, I will let you marry my daughter, which uh, means you're part of the nobility. It means these, the, all these rules that don't apply to commoners uh, or don't apply to nobles are now going to be granted to whoever marries his daughter. So he's, that's why this offer is so evil, so egg on the unworthy-ish, because he's tempted people with something that's so hard to refuse, because really being a noble in Westeros or being a noble in medieval times was really like being a demigod. You're so, so, so far above everyone else other than the other nobles in terms of what you can get away with, what you can do to people, and what other and people will accept it. It's like the rules, even the, the societal culture, the culture will even support it. Be like, yeah, he's a noble. He can get away with that. Or she's a noble. She can get away with that. They might call it unfair, but they won't know anything about it. Davin Lannister, son of Stafford. We got to jump ahead a little and talk about him because he he's going to show up with and talk to Jamie in A Dance with Dragons and, or Feast for Crows, rather. And He's the son of Stafford. Stafford is, you know, Uncle Dolt. And Davin is not Doltish. He's considered pretty capable. He's kind of fun, actually. But he had vowed to not cut his hair until he slew his father's killer. And his father's killer is Lord Rickard Karstark. So, but we find out later that he's like, eh, I'm just going to keep growing my hair anyway. <laughs> he kind of he decided he liked having just crazy, long, big lion hair main thing. So, eh, why not? Oh, strange coincidence. I don't think this is intentional on George's part, but it's several things that line up. I can't imagine why it matters, but uh, both the number of Karstark men who flee, the, har- the horsemen, and the number of Oberon's party headed up from Dorne in a few chapters are 300. And they both have similar sigils, right? The Karstark sigil is a sun, and the Martell sigil is a sun and spear. And they're all after Lannisters. Both the Martells and the Karstarks really, really want to kill Lannisters. So, eh, I, don't know, I don't think that's an intentional parallel, but it sure does line up well. Stefan B. points out the Brendan Blackfish jumps in with the line, until we can bring the murdered dead back to life when they're arguing about keeping Rickard Karstark's murders secret. Well, isn't that poignant? Because Brendan is probably going to meet Lady Stoneheart. He may have already met her off page. We may see the evidence of that in the prologue of The Winds of Winter. And because, you know, as we know, Brendan escaped from the Siege of River Run and Lady Stoneheart is in the general region. So she is indeed the murdered dead brought back to life. And of course, Beric Dondarrion is uh, the one who's going to pass that life force on to her. And he has been brought back to life several times already. Uh, also mentioned on Flick, 
and I didn't write down who mentioned that. My apologies. Part of the tragedy of Edmure is that he'd be a great peacetime lord. Yeah, he's he. It's, it, the, the, the comment was noted that he he doesn't notice that everyone else is standing up, and he's like, "Oh, I'm going to stand up." It's it's kind of like the bumbling Edmure we see on TV, uh, where he's just kind of oblivious. But except for TV, didn't show a lot of Edmure's goodness that he's, it sort of did, but it didn't show that he's really good to the commoners and he's, he's actually a very decent guy. Some of that came over on TV, but they leaned a little more into the bumbling. <laughs> uh, still, uh, it's a good comment. I agree. If, if it wasn't for all this war, Edmure would be beloved of the peasants to the commoners. I think he would be a very popular Lord and not just because he's nice. I think he would probably earn that love uh, because he's a decent guy. Super chat from Tommy Pappas, Valerie Reedus. Thank you, Tommy. Captain Hayma Hellman, shout out to the New Dad Podcast. And shout out to the New Dad Podcast being a new dad again. Tommy has had his second child, another boy. And, oh, shoot, what's the name? I'm slip. I'm forgetting. The- Sol- Solomon, yeah. Solomon. Shepard's the first one, and Solomon's the second one. I spaced out on that. Solomon. An heir and a spare, as everyone keeps saying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Congrats to Tommy and Lita for that. Very awesome uh, newborn. This is just a couple days ago the kid was born. So we're, we're talking like a 72, 40, or 48-hour old boy here. <laughs> Very cool. And with that, we are ready to move on to Jamie 3. Everybody wants Jamie, a.k.a. the Kingslayer's last hand. And this one, what I'm talking about when I mean everybody, I mean outlaws of all kinds, lords like Edmure, you got Karstark and Karstark men, you got Brienne, you got Tywin, you got Cersei. The chapter starts with a very long first sentence. Two days' ride to either side of the King's Road, they passed through a wide swath of destruction miles of blackened fields and orchards where the trunks of dead trees jutted into the air like archers' stakes. As Jamie himself says, it all comes back to Ares. He says it a few times throughout the series. I don't think he says it in this one, but it does remind him of Ares. The devastation that has, you know, even when it has nothing to do with him, when he sees burned things, well, here it is, quote. A half mile on, green began to creep back into the world once more. Jamie was glad the burned lands reminded him too much of Ares. It's important to remember as rereaders that the Ares wildfire reveal is a slow one, meaning a first-time reader at this point still doesn't know that Ares was going to blow up King's Landing. It's only been alluded to. The truth doesn't get stated fully and bluntly until the bathtub scene. There have been hints of it, like I said, like Jamie killing Rossart, the pyromancer, and him thinking of Rossart being hand to the king and him killing Ares just after that. So they're connected. And of course, another song is referenced here at the beginning of the chapter, Six Maids in a Pool, a song about Maiden Pool, which is where they are at that point. And that is funny to think of in light of the bathtub scene coming up because, well, bathing in the pools of Maiden Pool is, is a thing. Uh, even in Fire and Blood, it gets mentioned that I think Alisanne... Queen Alessand goes there with her mate, with some of her uh, people. And, um, well, she gets attacked there. It becomes a, a whole incident. But still, it shows you that people go to these natural pools to bathe in them, which is a tie-in to the bathtubs. So Brienne's going to come back here in A Feast for Crows as well. She's going to be back in this area. And they're going to head towards Duskendale right now. This is where they're supposed to be heading, which 
is again something that makes us think of Ares because that's the the incident that maybe pushed him over the edge in his insanity, uh, his imprisonment there and being uh, tormented a bit in captivity. They're ambushed by some non-bloody mummer outlaws. Not sure who they are. It might be Brotherhood Without Banners. It's not clear. Regardless of who it is, it leads to Brienne and Jamie dueling because Cleos is killed. Now, many authors and poets and wordsmiths of all kinds have spoken to the compelling but uncertain space between sex and violence. Everyone has heard of, if not personally witnessed, a couple that fights as hard as they, well, you know. The language George uses to describe Jamie versus Brienne is very much in line with this, except that they aren't together, at least not yet. But the suggestiveness Well, it's another example of one of those things that's fairly easy to miss, but once you see it, it really sticks out. I'm just warming the metaphors up. Quote, The swords kissed and sprang apart and kissed again. Our good friend of the show, Kristen uh, Reed Tretto, commented on the uh, Facebook post for this chapter and said, I think I'm going to need a cigarette. (laughs) And the quote continues. Left, right backslash, swinging so hard that sparks flew when the swords came together, upswing, side slash, overhand, always attacking, moving into her, step and slide, strike and step, step and strike, hacking, slashing, faster, faster, faster. (laughs) Faster, 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 (laughs) moving into her. Hmm. (laughs) And then after that. His point scraped past her parry and bit into her upper thigh. A red flower blossomed and Jamie had an instant to savor the sight of her blood before his knee slammed into a rock. Yep. A red flower blossomed from her upper thigh. Mm. <laughs> a little less sexy. A little less. On top of that, we have lines like Brienne grunting every time they crash together. <laughs> and of course, they finish the fight with Brienne on top of Jamie, pinning his arms above his head. Mm, that's not at all sexual. And Jamie thinking... Brienne lurched to her feet. She was all mud and blood below the waist, her clothing askew, her face red. She looks as if they caught us fucking instead of fighting. And there you go. It's in case we missed it, (laughs) he just spells it out for us. Jamie's fighting spirit is impressive, even if it's the stuff of head-shaking foolishness. They were so close to King's Landing. He just... Brienne had been doing a good job of protecting him, too. She, She, you know... Avoided the ambush, that thing with the with the skiff and the river, like no one else could have pulled that off. But he just couldn't be stand couldn't stand to be delivered to King's Landing in chains, I suppose. There's that Lannister pride. But we see firsthand what has been said and thought before that Jamie feels truly alive when fighting. An interesting metaphor to consider when thinking far ahead to fighting the armies of the dead, right? Mm. Nina reminds us that. We have another opportunity, as we love to see, when we get to, to look at an event from two perspectives. In this case, sorta. Brienne thinks of this fight later here. Quote. Brienne remembered her fight with Jamie Lannister in the woods. It had been all that she could do to keep his blade at bay. He was weak from his imprisonment and chained at the wrists. No knight in the Seven Kingdoms could have stood against him at his full strength with no chains to hamper him. Jamie had done many wicked things, but the man could fight. Yeah, mm, for sure. How good is he going to be after all his one-handed practice? I wonder about that. Perhaps he'll be more effective as a commander. That'll be where his impact is felt rather as a, as a warrior, but still, I'm curious. And I wonder what other fights we'll see her in. 
I mean, we definitely have a few others that we know of, but there's probably more coming later, maybe even bigger ones. Then Brienne fighting against Jamie here in the Riverlands could become rather ironic if the theory of Brienne championing Jamie in a trial by combat comes to pass. And it could be those men, the ones who eventually follow Stoneheart, that we see shooting arrows at them at the start of the chapter, the ones who kill Cleos. Yeah, it could be them who <laughs> are watching and witnessing this trial by combat, which would be funny if they were watching Jamie and Brienne fight. Well, brave companions certainly were watching them fight, showing up and laughing. Urzwick, the non-warrior-like second-in-command of the Brave Companion, is, is apparently uninterested in being bribed by Jamie. And there's this exchange. Are you such a fool as to think the goat can outfight the lion? Urzwick leaned over and slapped him lazily across the face. The sheer casual insolence of it was worse than the blow itself. He does not fear me, Jamie realized with a chill. That's the second time he gets to chill this chapter. The first one comes when he realizes Brienne is stronger than he is. And it's, it's sort of like it, it, his Lannister identity is coming off a little bit. That's a, a big overtone for a lot of his chapters, his early arc especially. But it's also just him changing. He's used to people being afraid of him. He's used to being deferred to. He's used to his prestige and privilege opening doors for him and, and giving him deference. And neither his talent was enough to defeat Brienne, nor is his birth enough to get him out of this situation with the Mummers. But also, Jamie thinking of other fighters, well, we got to quote that. Robert had been stronger than him, to be sure. The, the white bull, Gerald Hightower as well, in his heyday, and Sir Arthur Dane. Amongst the living... Great John Umber was stronger, strong bore of Craig Hall, most likely, both Cleganes for a certainty. The mountain strength was like nothing human. Did not matter. With speed and skill, Jamie could beat them all. But this was a woman, a huge cow of a woman, to be sure. But even so, by rights, she should be the one wearing down. Yeah, it's a little bit like Victorian, how he just loves fighting and would love to just fight the best and just to see how well he does against them. But Jamie's not going to have that chance, obviously. So Jamie, seeing the result of uh, going up, what happens when you go up against Brienne, because this is what Brienne thinks about later in her POV chapters, which is that men will try to beat her quickly because their pride will get in the way. This is what her master at arms teaches her. They won't be able to fathom a fight with a woman taking more than a few moments. All the more reason to play it really defensively. Let them get frustrated. Let them extend their strength. Let them get mad at the fact that they're not winning. Then they'll try even harder and then they'll get even more tired. That's exactly what's happening here. And fighting an overly defensive opponent might make them, might lull them into a false sense of security not realizing that it's a ruse. They think, oh, she's a coward. She's just being, you know, overly defensive because she's not good at attacking. Well, let that frustration build. Watch them get tired quickly. And when they do, overwhelm them as they tried to overwhelm you. But th now they'll be tired and you won't be. So you, it'll actually work when you do it. It's, it's how Brienne beats and slays Rorge in A Feast for Crows. And Rorge is in this chapter. <laughs> There's mention of Biter chewing some pores poor Septa's breasts off, which is apparently a semi-regular occurrence given there's a report of this happening at salt pans later, also in A Feast for Crows. 
And not long before Brienne kills Rorge, in fact, and Gendry does for Biter, of course. So this all kind of comes back later. In A Feast for Crow, she also slays Shagwell, Pig, and Timian. Shagwell and Timian are both in this chapter, and they both talk. It takes four of the brave companions to beat her into submission and captivity, even after all that fighting with Jamie and them just being fully rested. Before that, gotta love how Brienne seems barely aware of arrows sticking out of her. <laughs> it reminds me of Shaga, who did the same after the Battle of the Green Fork. Some of them were only buried in his armor, and that might be at least partly the case for Brienne here. Armor can block arrows entirely, but often they turn what would be a deep and deadly wound into just a nasty cut. So it doesn't actually stop the blow. It just makes it into something that's not a big deal. In other words, bloody, but nowhere near life-threatening, except for the case of infection, maybe. Speaking of wounds and infections, remember that Kyburn is going to treat Jamie soon after this. But in the meantime, it's part of his suffering because it will get infected. And let's review why the Brave Companions cut Jamie's hand off. That's a big explanation. It can easily pass for savage cruelty, as it is on the TV show. That's kind of what it is. It's just vindictiveness from Locke is like, I hate this rich boy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt him. But for Roose Bolton's explanation in Jamie's next chapter, we know that there's a lot more to it. Hote realizes, Vargo Hote, that is, realizes he's made a huge mistake in switching sides to the Starks. He took it, a very simple view of it. He's like, well, the Stark keep winning all the battles, so clearly I need to be on that side. He doesn't know the politics very well. Roos doesn't say it, but Hote may have figured out Bolton's betrayal as well. Tywin knows Hote works for Bolton now. So Hote may have figured that out too. And that's why he cuts, part of why he cuts Jamie's hand off, because it looks like Bolton gave the order. And well, how's that going to look to Tywin? Why, if you're Tywin, you're going to be, you're going to be thinking, why would this Lord Bolton, who's currently plotting with me to betray the Starks, why would he cut my son's hand off as part of these negotiations? This is weird. So that's why Roos calls it his, quote, small difficulty later and wants Jamie to explain the truth to Tywin, to tell him, look, I didn't do this. Vargo Hote did it. That makes sense. Blah, blah, blah. So this is a chapter where even after many rereads and seeing it on TV, it's still pretty shocking for the hand to get cut off. It's not a long chapter, but it's really neat that action used as foreshadowing. That's something that's really hard to do. Usually action is just action. It's just resolving the buildup of conflict. But George is doing it here to foreshadow future events, which is wild, not just more violence, showing how Brienne's capable, showing how she's going to fight, show how she carries herself with the allusions to the fighting the undead, and more importantly, allusions to them having a relationship later. That's just really, really amazing to me. Jamie has a few other thoughts worth bringing up. He thinks of being separated from his sister by their mother after being caught together, and how Stannis may have done them a favor. <laughs> Recall that he's going to suggest to Cersei that they just admit it to the realm. <laughs> She's be like, let's just be like Targaryens. Let's just lean into that. We're above the rules, right? Our father thinks so. <laughs> but Cersei's going to reject that and call him nuts. Even she, who does believe she's over the, above the rules, isn't so crazy as to think she can get away with that. They don't have dragons. <laughs> of course, as usual, he's not reckoning for Tywin either. Not only will Tywin not allow this either, he's not going to allow them to declare their love. 
the marriage to Sansa is going to happen before he gets to King's Landing anyway. He's going to miss the Purple Wedding even. That because he goes back for Brienne after leaving Hall. It's kind of funny how Jamie leaves River Run, goes in the direction of King's Landing, but then is captured by the Brave Companions and starts going back towards Hall. then leaves Hall, then goes back to Hall to save Brienne, and then goes to King's Landing. He's been so close to King's Landing for so long, but it takes him forever to get there because of all this back and forth. There's an interesting exchange when Jamie tries to give Brienne advice about how to handle the likely sexual assaults coming to her at night from the Brave Companions. He suggests not resisting, and she fires back that he would resist, and she's no different. Another subtle example, maybe not that subtle, really, of how similar they are, of how she has the same warrior spirit he has and would react the same way. He's like, look, no, this is, I can't do that. I cannot just give in. I'm, I'm not made that way. I have to fight back even when it's hopeless. And we see her carry that attitude forward entirely. This is all building up to Jamie going very far out of his way to rescue her later, of course. And that is, again, part of why she may stand up for him when it comes to the death sentence that's likely coming from Lady Stoneheart. She may say, look, trial by combat, I'll champion him. Who knows what happens after that, though? Here's a very important part with regards to Jamie's changing character. His imprisonment and time with Brienne, that's a major point we raised at the start of his arc. Note here how he's already decided to do the right thing, though, before losing his hand. And it's not for the right reasons, but still it's telling that this decision comes before he loses his hand. Quote, Jamie had decided that he would return Sansa and the younger girl as well if she could be found. It was not like to win him back his lost honor, but the notion of keeping faith when they all expected betrayal amused him more than he could say. And this gets to the heart of it, the stone heart of it, you could say. It's not that Brienne is going to stand for Jamie as his champion because she knows he's a changed man. It's because she knows he really did do a reasonable job of following through on the oath he made to Catelyn of trying to find her daughters and release them. Jamie has made a real legitimate effort in that regard. And Brienne knows it because she's the one that was sent out to do the work. She's the one given the sword. She's the one given a set of armor and a decree from the king. Nobody knows better than her that Jamie did not break his oath, does not deserve to be executed for that crime. And no chance, no choice. See that come up again for her and she'll stand for him. One of the theories that I think is most likely to come true of all the many theories about the Winds of Winter, that one, I, it's almost headcanon at this point. From Joe Buckley, we've spent so much time out in the wild at Hall or visiting tiny villages or farms and seeing all the devastation the war has brought that it seems George wanted to get across. This was happening in the little towns as well, or the larger towns, rather, the places that are more than villages. And Maidenpool is our example. It's really happening there. Maidenpool is in sorry, sorry shape. And, uh, well, I don't know if Randall Tarley is there yet, but he's going to be the one to take it over. And when Brienne passes through there, as we know, in A Feast for Crows, he's going to be there. And, well, that has all sorts of other outcomes that we'll get to later. Here's a quote that I'll read. They saw nothing lying living but a few feral dogs that went slinking away at the sound of their approach. The pool from which the town took its name, where legend said that Florian the Pool had first glimpsed Jonquil bathing with her sisters, was so choked with rotting corpses that the water had turned into a murky gray-green soup. Ugh. So we wonder, you look at the map, that could be related to this battle at Duskendale when Roos threw those men away 
the one that Rob is so puzzled out, the one that we suggested virus could read that as what it is. Well, these might be those bodies. These might, this might be from that battle. Um, it, it might be a little far off, but this is, there would be, as we're told, the survivors of Duskendale are being chased by uh, the mountains men. So that would be in this general area as well. There would be lots of bodies, of course. So that all ties together as far as the war and the aftermath. So it's interesting too, Joe points out how quickly we, the action starts in this chapter and Jamie's incredible skills that Brienne thinks of later. Also, it's just his experience. The sound of an arrow is what he knows is a symbol or a signal to duck. He ducks at the sound of an arrow and he understands how to react, even though it requires courage. He's like, you got to charge those archers. And Brienne is not familiar with that. She asked him, why did you charge the archers? And it's a, a one or two people pointed out in our social media that this was sort of like him squiring her a bit, like teaching her what he has experienced uh, from one night to another. Uh, she's younger and less experienced. And he's got real battle experience and is very talented. So that's kind of neat, just showing that, uh, that side of their uh, relationship, that side of their connection. A couple thoughts from Nina. Jamie's attitude in this chapter is very reminiscent of the Targaryen's doctrine of exceptionalism. Yeah, we talked about the, we, I put it in, described it similarly, but this is a much more succinct way to put it. And that comes up in Fire and Blood. Again, we, a big part of our reread is, is looking for things that Fire and Blood taught us and applying them to the series. And this is a great example of that. The doctrine of exceptionalism is something that was basically written about during the time of Jaehaerys and Alisand that allowed them to uh, get away with, it, it was a way to allow the, the faith of the seven religion to accept these aspects of the Targaryen royal family that were not acceptable to the faith. And it was basically like, okay, only they can get away with it. So it's, it's, it's actually a written treatise. It's, it's not just some idea, some attitude that the Targaryens have. It's actually written down. And had Fire and Blood been written, maybe Jamie would have specifically thought of it by name or, or, or Cersei. But it's also probably in world kind of an obscure scholarly piece by this point. So it's not exactly something I would say is, is a plot hole because it's entirely believable. They've never heard of that phrase, but if he had written it, he might've thrown it in there. Still, I, it's, it's neat to see that they're following along the same line of thinking that they're above everyone. And so they can, they, they get to have these exceptions. They're powerful and strong and they get to set their own rules. And it's, it's not as crazy as it sounds because we've already outlined how, it's as gross as it sounds, but it's not as crazy as it sounds because we've just got through talking about how lords and ladies are on a whole nother plane of existence when it comes to what they can get away with and what they can do. So why not the king and the queen and the royal family having another level of existence that's above everyone else where they get to set their own rules and the rules apply to them differently and all that. It's, it's already part of the system. It's just This is just an extension of that. One could argue anyway. I'm not saying Jamie's right, but it's not as crazy as it sounds is what I'm saying. Nina also points out the, the wildness of Joanna banishing Jamie and Cersei to opposite sides of Casterly Rock. Well, as we know, Casterly Rock is massive, something like seven miles wide, <laughs> something insanely huge. When Jamie, uh, when, they were, when they were separated, they may have really been separated. On the other hand, he may be 
exaggerating. I don't mean exaggerating the seven miles part. I mean exaggerating that they were kept on opposite sides of Castle Rock. He may have just been, it felt that way to seven-year-old Jamie. Still, it's really far. Some thoughts from y'all. Archmaster Rennie says, Jamie teaching. Ah, it was, uh, yeah. Wants to bring up, uh, this is a first of Brienne's many disfiguring injuries that she acquires along the way. Uh, something that really separates her from the TV version. We already talked about how Gwendolyn Christie just can't pass for ugly as Book Brienne is. But Book Brienne gets even uglier over time. She loses teeth. She gets a hole in her face from Biter and is just lots of horrific injuries to her face. She's like, it's almost like Tyrion. Scott Wartman and Nina discuss how Jamie says callously how he's amply provisioned in Cousins after Cleos' death. But really, those cousins are dying pretty fast. Tyrex disappeared. Lancel's not doing so great. Willem was just killed by Karstark. Tion was just killed by Karstark. And we talked about how Tywin has sown the seeds of vindictiveness and revenge and, and all that for blood debts. And more Lannisters could be going down soon as well. Whitney Cayley Stanfield with a great take here. She points out that this fight between Brienne and Jaime especially with the overtones of fighting the undead that I brought up is a prelude to his dream, his where his werewood slash fever slash infection dream, dream wine dream that he has of where he's fighting uh, the dead beneath Castle rock with Brienne at his side. So that's very cool. I like that take. It's, it's definitely uh, leading in that direction. Another clue to his loss of Lannister identity is the phrase, the bridges were burned as well as they're passing the landscape. That was caught by a couple of our uh, flick commenters. That's a good one. When he, the, the phrase burning bridges is certainly a metaphor for, for ending relationships. And the bridges were burned as well is right here in this, uh, in this chapter. Very good. Stefan B with a great take. Comparing Vargo's chain of coins, which is the first time we really get to see his, uh, see it up close, I think, uh, his chain, which is from many lands. He's killed people in all these lands. It's like a brutal inversion of the maester's chain, right? You've had the maesters learn from a variety of disciplines. Each chain in the, each link in the chain is different kind of metal. Well, these coins are different metals and different ideas, but they each represent killing and violence and and probably in his case cutting of of hands and feet off uh whereas maesters are are learning and and educating and making the world better uh tree girl also with a great catch related to the baths and maiden pool and uh the bath scene later is well in the next chapter we're about to start is aria four there is a song about pursuing his love through the forest and losing to her in the end and becoming, you know, yielding to his forest lass because she wants to stay in the woods. She doesn't want to become a lady sleeping in a feather bed and all that. She wants to live in nature. Well, not only is that potentially a reference to Jenny of Old Stones, but in this light, that's how this fight between Jamie and Brienne goes. He pursues his love through the forest and loses to her in the end. They, they're fighting out in the open and then they eventually end up in the forest in, in that stream. So, yeah, it's a nice catch there. I'm not sure if that's intentional, but I, it's worth considering and, if, and it fits even if it wasn't intentional. Very subtle there. Great catch. All right. 
Aria 4, the one with the Ghost of High Heart, a.k.a. the gang tours the Riverlands. Really, I could have called it the first one with the Ghost of, of High Heart because there's going to be a Ghost of High Heart 2 electric boogaloo later in the book. Quite a few locations are visited in this one, hence the name Touring the Riverlands. The Brotherhood is roaming from place to place, searching for their main group containing Thoros and Beric. It's explained in this chapter, and the dot is connected back to her time in captivity with Gregor. The mountains men would frequently torture people, and they would often ask where Lord Beric is hiding. Here we're shown the age-old tactic of that is employed by secret cells, terrorists, things like that. Good people and bad. If you don't know where he is, they can't get it out of you via torture. They literally couldn't answer where Beric was because he wouldn't let them know. Didn't stop them from torturing him, but you know. The chapter starts with a fantastic first line. The small square keep was half a ruin, and so too the great gray knight who lived there. Now there's a micro story, right? (laughs) So much can be gleaned from just that. It's a great, great first sentence. The first sentences this time have been particularly excellent. Though, of course, there's more to it than just this one sentence. But this chapter is full of little micro stories, not just that one. The great gray knight who is uh, a Linderly, his sons were all killed in Robert's Rebellion on both sides. And uh, yeah, like Nina said, he's a little bit like Sir Eustace Osgray, kind of a broken man whose sons were all killed in the war. That's a good catch. After this, they head to a small village hidden in the trees. It sounds kind of fantastical, but really it's just people hiding up in the trees and they say that they won't be able to hide there very long. It's run by a a woman called the so-called Lady of the Leaves, a a village elder. And we're seeing... uh, a pattern, a bit of a pattern, when you see more and more women running these places, because even though it's normal in this society for men to be in charge, well, most of the men are either off in the war or already dead from the war. And that is when a lot of uh, women end up rising to the challenge and taking over and doing good work. The so-called lady that leaves in this case is clearly a supporter of the BWB. And with a name like that, it's what sounds fantastical, but there's nothing magical or supernatural going on here at all. They just, you, they're just clever. Uh, Tom uses a coded signal, musical signal, uh, upon their arrival, and they drop ladders and things. But as I said, this place couldn't last. It's probably gone by now, at the current point in the books, because the Lady of the Leaves says their concealment in the trees depends on the leaves. And well, autumn, winter, leaves won't be there etc it's it's pretty straightforward in that sense she also reports a dozen wolves on the prowl karstark men almost certainly and they find that more karstark men have sacked a small sept nearby lem asks first if it was the bloody mummers because who else would be sacking septs well not he's not wrong to make that guess because we did in fact see them sack a small sept in this previous chapter. That's where Jamie and then Brienne come upon them after they've been captured. But in fact, it's the Karstarks sacking a sept. So yuck. So they move on, such as the life of an outlaw band trying to find their leader when there's no regular base of operations, right? They just got to keep looking. Next up is High Heart itself. And notice how similar it sounds to the fist of the first men. High heart had been sacred to the children of the forest, Tom Seven Strings told her, and some of their magic lingered here still. No harm can ever come to those as sleep here, the singer said. 
Arya thought that must be true. The hill has the hill was so high and the surrounding land so flat that no enemy could approach unseen. Now, of course, the fist had problems. Being high and tall and being able to see everything coming isn't always <laughs> uh, such an advantage. I mean, you can get trapped there. You can be besieged there. Maybe that's what happened back in the day. Tom tells her of the Andal King, Eric, the Kinslayer, who chopped down the 31 Weirwoods here. Maybe that was after some long siege of the forces hiding up there. Who knows? But even to this day, the small folk shun the place due to ghosts. But Arya, as usual, is not bothered. She thinks of playing in the crypts of Winterfell and how ghosts don't really scare her. And what's, in fact, the ghost is going to be afraid of her, though not in this chapter. It's the, Again, it's going to be in Ghost of High Heart 2, Electric Boogaloo, when the ghost takes note of Arya and freaks out a little bit. But Arya does see her, this chapter, and we learn that she's a tiny dwarf woman called the Ghost of High Heart. She's not actually a ghost. She seems to have the mark of the old gods with those red eyes, you know. She's a foot shorter than Arya. That's really short because Arya's only 11 and Arya thinks she's older than old Nan. Her hair is white. And though it would be white by now anyway due to age, probably it may have been white in her youth as well. Uh, like I said, the mark of the old gods with those red eyes. He says that red or green eyes like Trojans can mark those with green dreams and uh, or green seers and like Bloodraven himself, an albino with red eyes, which is might be what she is. The old gods stir and will not let me sleep, she heard the woman say. I dreamt I saw a shadow with a burning heart butchering a golden stag. I, I dreamt of a man without a face waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung. On his shoulder perched a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings. I dreamt of a roaring river and a woman that was a fish. Dead she drifted with red tears on her cheeks, but when her eyes did open, oh, I woke from terror. So the first part is Renly's death. Next up is Ren, uh, Euron Greyjoy's faceless man, perhaps bought with a dragon egg who will toss Balon off the so-called swaying and swinging rope bridge. Third, we have Lady Stoneheart floating down, you know, a woman that was a fish dead with red tears on her cheeks. This is all pretty straightforward. The eyes did open. Oh, I woke from terror. That's, if you were to have read this the first time and, and noted that line, and then saw Catelyn get killed later, you might actually see her, her undead awakening coming, but pretty hard to catch, pretty hard to piece all that together on a first-time read, but it is quite clearly laid out. It's, it's funny how straightforward this prophecy seems when you've already read the book. Some of the others are still pretty hard to figure out, like the, the House of the Undying still has a lot of tricks to it. A lot of the ones associated with Danny are tricky, but this one, not so much really, right? Now, there's more from her, of course, more prophecies coming in the second time we see her. And that's going to also include Beric and Thoros being present. And it's going to also start off with her confirming one of these prophecies she said here, which is the, the absolute first thing she says is the king is dead. And they're like, which king? And she says, this, the Iron King or the Wet One, whatever. She's referring to Balon, clearly. So... Here she refers to Euron getting ready to kill Balon, and then she delivers the news that that's actually happened. That's going to be Arya 8, which is chapter 44. This is currently, I think, chapter 23. Anyway, so that's also in that second chapter is when we get clarity on what the song that, that the ghost wants is. It's Jenny's song. And we also, besides that, get music 
So we'll talk more about Jenny's song in that chapter when it's uh, more appropriate, when it's more discussed directly, but it's good to note that that's what's happening here. There's other music in this one, though. The floppy fish anecdote comes up, which we had discussed in advance of this chapter, and something about the maiden of the tree, about a woman who preferred to live in the forest than to marry a lord, which we just referenced with Brienne and Jamie's duel. Nina suggests that that could also be about Jenny's song. And I like that idea, or not about Jenny's song, but about Jenny, because Jenny of Old Stones was something that Bard sung about. And we have to not be in the mind of the way songs work in our world, the modern world. It's not like songs get recorded and distributed. You know, Bard decides to write a song about Jenny and maybe some other bards pick it up because it's really good, but a lot of them just have their own version. Kind of like how everyone knows the Bear and the Maiden Fair, but there's subtle differences in how they sing it and the circumstances in which they would sing it. There's very few songs like that where everyone knows the words. Mostly there's versions of, of these things written by individuals and they're of varying similarity or not. But the subject matter is the thing that they have in common. Lady Smallwood mentions speaking of singers, that Tom has driven many women to drink tansy tea. And this, of course, is surely meant to connect to Catelyn trying to figure out what her father meant by saying tansy in grief so many times. And of course, it's all wrapped up with the Tullys because Tom and the floppy fish and all that. So it's all kind of meant to make us think of these related topics. She might be giving Tom a hard time in part because it seems that they used to be an item themselves. Lady Smallwood, Lady Ravella here, and Tom had some sort of fling it seems like they parted on good terms, or maybe they didn't part. Maybe they're still hooking up. But Tom's past relationship with her might be a big reason or the reason why she's given the, the Brotherhood shelter at all. Um, maybe she's a good person that would be sheltering them no matter what, but maybe it's her relationship with him that sort of got it all started, broached the subject. Arya wrestles with Gendry, and of course it reminds us of Brienne and Jamie just fighting, meaning it also could be a setup for a future romantic connection. It's hard to not realize or to not notice that both of these characters fight slash wrestle or these pairs of characters and both of them in the show end up hooking up later. And well, there's plenty of reason to think that they'll hope that both of these pairs will hook up in the books. Also, there's lots of foreshadowing for it. You know, Arya is, is it's, we're not long from Arya noticing Gendry's chest and things like that. Or did that already happen? I forget. Anyway, she's, She's noticing him, just like uh, Jamie is noticing Brienne. This is telling, of course. Uh, it's paired with her not liking it. Gendry tells her she looks nice and smells nice, and she gets mad. She shoves him. It's part of, I, I think, her same thought process of maybe my family won't want me back. I'm all dirty and, and lost. Maybe they don't love me anymore. It's very sad because Arya isn't weepy about it. it it's, it it's sadder than it may even seem because she handles it pretty well, despite it being a very sad thought and very like, oh, this poor child. And R Lady Smallwood is, is, picks up on a lot of it, I think, too. But Arya feels like she's not deserving of love. She, it, it's difficult for her, too, not just is she out here alone, but she grew up comparing herself to Sansa. And Sansa is... Incredibly beautiful. She's the very image of what society says a noble girl should be like. And Arya is the opposite. So Arya just thinks of herself as inadequate in that regard. And she doesn't realize how much of a badass she is. She doesn't realize how attractive that is. And she doesn't realize that, well, you know, not everyone wants someone like Sansa, you know? So she's just got all these thoughts wrapped up in her head about not being lovable. And in both ways, not family love and romantic love. And of course, 
this is where we really, really have some love for Lady Smallwood. This is a really amazing character who on, on reread is just kind of steals the scene for me because if it goes to high heart later. Her second appearance is when we really get into the meat of it. But this one, like I said, these prophecies are pretty easy to interpret. She's really interesting. But to me, Lady Smallwood is the scene stealer here. She's super subtle with her reads. She's had kids of her own. She kind of understands what's going on with Arya. She claims to not know who Arya is. But by the end of the chapter, she does. Because Harwin says she was much the same at Winterfell. <laughs> so she knows she's a noble girl. And then she says Winterfell. Harwin says Winterfell. So mm, that's really, really straightforward. So that could come up later. Ravella Smallwood there's at least one lady out there who can identify Arya or at least know she's alive. Maybe Brienne wanders by much later and they have a conversation. And remember, we'll look with what I was saying about how Lady Smallwood kind of understands where Arya's coming from, kind of has this deep read of her character. And I think that's why, a big part of why she tells Arya she's pretty at the end of the chapter. She says, yes, child, and so are you. When she's talking about, Arya says, I'm sorry I tore the dress, it's pretty. And because Arya is having these, this reaction to being called pretty and seen a certain way and hearing it from Lady Smallwood is different than hearing it from Gendry because Gendry's not an authority figure. Gendry's not someone that she respects. She's, he's a peer, <laughs> right? He's, a, he's like her friend who is also young, uh, not a, an adult. And thus his opinion is, is taken differently. But when Ravella says it, and especially the way she says it with the different circumstances, it really hits Arya really hard. And it hits, frankly, a lot of us readers pretty darn hard because it's, it's a great poignant little moment of, of love amidst so much chaos and destruction. And, and these are the kind of things that need to be brought back to the world. These are, this is the kind of interaction that is to be built on. It's the, kind of, it's the green growing in the destruction that Jamie sees amidst all the devastation. He's like, oh, there's some green coming back into the world. This is a little of the same. And it's interesting, speaking of Jamie, they discuss him by conferring. They learn that Jamie is indeed on the loose, but they do not believe that Catelyn let, her, let him go on purpose. That's just, they think that's so ridiculous. Tom is so startled that he breaks a string. That, and he's like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and Lady Smallwood also thinks, yeah, there's no way that happened. <laughs> But we find out that the Karstark men have been here, too. They've been everywhere. Everywhere this tour, this Riverlands tour, takes our characters today, we find that the Karstark men have been there, too, looking for Jamie. I love Lady Smallwood saying, oh, yeah, I've got him in here naked in my bed. (laughs) Gotta love that. Again, Nina suggests, I doubt it's coincidence that both the Bloody Mummers and the Karstark men are shown at described in attacking and robbing a sept it's a damning indictment on Ricard's quest for revenge against Jamie. Yep, there's that. And I think there's something about, I want to go back to Biter biting off the breasts of Septas, which I know you were eager to discuss that some more. Because he's, he does it multiple times. And I actually hadn't noticed that before in prior rereads. And in this, is, the reason I bring it up again is because this chapter, the Septon says the Karstark men cut off the breasts of the mother statue too, even though they were just wood. There's not, there wasn't any sort of, gemstone nipples or something like that that they were cutting off so there seems to be some deep symbolism here it's like the the same thing that we were just talking about with lady smallwood and Arya and the these small moments of of 
human interaction that are beautiful and loving that there needs to be more of, that we need to nurture this. This is the opposite. This is the death of nurturing, the killing of the mother, the most nurturing of the gods. The mother's milk is the, the growth of children. I mean, it's, I'm not being super eloquent here, but I think you get the point that destroying those things says so much about what's happening all over the realm. And it's the death of mercy. These men are the opposite of nurturers. These men have no mercy. And it's bad. Jack B. Lucky says his brother Watt got sent to the wall in this chapter. And I did look to see if there's any follow-up on Watt and I got nothing. Sorry, y'all. Uh, maybe if there, there's, there's no Watt that we can be sure is Jack's. In fact, I don't think there's a Watt on the wall at all that we can connect to that. So, oh, well. Tom sings a song about Big Belly Ben, another of the Kingswood Brotherhood. So again, the Kingswood Brotherhood, as we went through last week, we talked about them a lot, but they're still popping up here and there, and they're still going to here and there even more. As a squire, Jamie stopped Big Belly Ben from killing Lord Sumner Craycall, who he was squiring for. Greenbeard calls Arya Squirrel in this chapter and quite a few others. She calls, he calls her Squirrel many times. But it was this time that I noticed that there's a little parallel to the girl named Squirrel. Now, if you don't remember who Squirrel is, she's one of the girls with Mance that infiltrates Winterfell in a dance with dragons. She poses as a washerwoman. When they sneak Jane, they think it's Arya. It's fake Arya, Jane uh, Poole. When they sneak her out of her bedroom, Squirrel takes fake Arya's place in her bed, becoming fake, fake Arya. And fake Arya, Jane Poole, dresses up like Squirrel. So Arya repeatedly tells Greenbeard during her time with the BWB that she's not a squirrel. But here we have someone calling herself squirrel, pretending to be Arya, who's pretending to be Arya. <laughs> so I don't even know if George did it on purpose, but it's hilarious. Uh, maybe she'll skin change into a squirrel someday, Arya will. But we shouldn't forget what she says in this chapter, that she's a wolf. Quote. The gods give each of us our little gifts and talents, and it is meant for us to use them, my aunt always says. Any act can be a prayer if done as well as we are able. Isn't that a lovely thought? Remember that the next time you do your needlework. Okay, of course, needlework. There's also some humor in that comment because obviously Ravel is talking about real needles and Arya is talking about her sword needle, but also consider in the light of the many-faced God. And, you know, what she's praying to. And any act can be a prayer. Any act can be a prayer, including if done as well as we were able, including killing. If done as well as we were able, that's what this faceless man try to do. They try to kill as efficiently, as effectively, as cleanly as possible. And she says, isn't that a lovely thought? <laughs> no, <laughs> not in that light. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ter- kind of, it's very serious and badass and, and like, whoa, but I don't know about lovely. That's not the right word of it. But it it's also comes along with Arya, this is a very subtle thing that Arya is thinking about the gods in general, and, and it's going to lead to, obviously, her time at the House of Black and White. But in the next chapter, or two chapters from now, maybe three even, I'm not sure, Arya is going to be questioning the gods in general after seeing Sandor win his trial. She knows he's guilty. The thing he gets put on trial for is the murder of Micah. She knows 100% he did it, yet he gets off, and she's confused by that. It's It's... Shades of Euron Greyjoy, not that she's anything like Euron, but it's the same kind of thing that Euron was like, hey, I killed 
several of my brothers and the God did nothing to me. So that's all the proof I need that there aren't any gods. And Ari is not exactly on that same path, but it's the same sort of logic saying, well, how can this be? The gods didn't do the thing that everyone says the gods would do. This is a trial by combat. The gods would take place. She doesn't stop to think, well, maybe the gods just don't care, (laughs) which is sort of the same thing. But it's part of her education of the gods and, and faith and all things like that. It's very interesting to look at her her particular unique education along these lines is very different from anyone else's. A flick discussion on who the wench Lem like was because there was, uh, Lem says, you know, tell me about this, this wench I used to have a thing for and ghost said, the ghost of High Heart says she's dead. <laughs> That's actually my theory that everybody wants to know maybe it's Masha Heddle maybe because Masha Heddle was hanged by Tywin. It's possible, but I think that this is a joke. I think the ghost is just messing with Lem because she likes him. She demands kisses from him. And <laughs> remember at in, in both times she wants him to kiss her. And uh, so the notion that he had someone else he liked to kiss is just her being like kind of humorously jealous. But maybe, maybe she's telling the truth. It's not hard to believe that in the Riverlands right now, some random tavern woman was killed. That's would be all too real and believable. Lady R. Ardras uh, on Facebook comments that Ravella says it's better to be insignificant. She says that to Arya, but I don't think that's entirely true, Lady Ravella. She, maybe you should be saying it's better to be insignificant as a noble, <laughs> but you don't want to be an insignificant peasant like this wench we just discussed, who very much, very likely ended up dead just because she's powerless and insignificant. So a little class distinction there. Uh, that Arya as a Stark is in danger. But if she was a Smallwood, well, she might be in Old Town because that's where Lady uh, Smallwood sent her daughter to Old Town to live there to where it's safer. Oops, speaking of Euron Greyjoy, is it actually safer in Old Town? So we may not be done with Lady Smallwood's family. I don't know that we'll see her again. I kind of hope we do. Like I said, maybe a Brienne chapter would be the most likely. But uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens to poor Lady Smallwood's daughter down there in Old Town. And with that, my fellow Westorians, we are done for the day. Thank you to everyone who came and who gave live comments. The chat was apparently robust today, as it often is. Lots of good points being raised. Lots of fun being had. Last week, we covered... 168 minutes, 44 seconds of audiobook. This week, it was only 141 minutes, 30 seconds. As I said, that's in part because of the two huge chapters that are close together. We've covered 790 minutes and 49 seconds of A Storm of Swords out of roughly 2,800-something. So we're a little past a quarter of the way through. And this video, this episode looks like we were about two hours and seven-ish minutes from the video version. Is that roughly right, I guess? We started a few minutes after... So as usual, check the podcast version, compare it to that number, and you can tell how much we edit it out. <laughs> Next time up, like I said, around or almost two-thirds of the book roughly takes place from King's Landing to River Run, give or take a little bit north and south like the Twins and High Heart. So next week is highly unusual in that we have five chapters and none of them are in that area. We have Daenerys 2, the one where they go to Astapor, a.k.a. the gang meets the Unsullied. 
Then we have Brand 2, Storytime, Storytime, the Tourney of Hall, a.k.a. the Gang Meets a Friendly Little. Davos 3, the once in future hands share a cell, a.k.a. the one with Mel's lecture on duality. John 3, Naked and a Cave, a.k.a. the one where John knows something. <laughs> and Daenerys 3, bookending... The, the episode nicely, the gang burns some slavers, a.k.a. the one where a dragon is no slave. I know a lot of you are looking forward to that one. I am in particular, too. So it's really nice that we get them in the same episode, meeting and taking of the Unsullied, all that. But also we get some northern storylines with Bran and John, and a little bit of Davos action in his jail cell. Thanks to Ashea for managing so many things at once. Thank you to Joe Buckley for his additions to the document. Please check out the Isle of Faces podcast. Thanks to Nina for her takes as well. Check her out on Tumblr at Good Queen Alley. That's one L. Thank you to our History of Westeros mods who do a fantastic job every week of putting the chapters up one by one, leading the discussion with quotes and artwork. And that adds a lot to each episode. Thanks also to the people who participate on Flick and Slack and Discord. We have just robust discussions going on all over the place, so you can take your pick as to which one is best for you, or if not, multiples. Thanks to Michael Clarfell. Michael Clarfeld. almost said Clarfield. <laughs> and Kevin McLeod for both the artwork and music that is so prominent in our videos. Thanks to our Benjineer for audio editing. And last but not least, thank you to our patrons, this is the doldrums of sorts. It's been a long time since we've had a TV season and there's not going to be another TV season for a while. And who knows when the book will be out. So this is when our, this is when support means the most because there's less people paying attention to Game of Thrones this time of year. Excuse me, Aziz. What? Fewer people. Oh, I'm so sorry. See, I don't deserve it. Now I don't deserve, I, I don't deserve Anything. what I'm asking for if I can't say things properly. But anyway, yeah. So this is a time when, our, when we appreciate support particularly much because... Well, there's just a little less of it to go around this uh, d- during this stage. So whatever you can do to help, we'd appreciate it. Uh, liking and sharing helps a lot, too. And regardless, we'll see you all next time for more Valar Reredus. <laughs>